was Saturday, and Jesus was in Bethany. The year was 27, 28, 29 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. And it was five days before the Passover. You may be wondering, what is the Passover? The Passover was a celebration to commemorate, to remember, to celebrate what God had done for the nation of Israel when they were in Egypt, in slavery, and in bondage. The Passover was that event during the 10th plague, the final plague, the, the, the death of the firstborn, where God spoke through Moses to Egypt and to Israel, and he said that this night an angel will pass through the nation. And, and, and the, the, the curse, the plague of the death of the firstborn would be that every family in all of Egypt would suffer loss. The loss of a firstborn son, a loss of a firstborn animal. The only exception would be for those Israelites who would take a lamb, kill it, take blood from that lamb, and paint it on the doorposts, the door frames of their houses. And if there was blood on the doorpost or the door frames, then the angel would pass over that house and go on to the next. So those Israelites who were covered by the blood, who came underneath the blood, found life and not death. That's why Jesus had made his way to Bethany. For Bethany was just a Sabbath day's walk or so to Jerusalem. If you're a guest visiting with us today, you were like, wow, you didn't even say hi. You just started in. Thank you for being here. We're beginning our series called Death Was Arrested. And today we're going to walk through the timeline of the last week of Jesus' life. And you're going to understand before you leave today why it's so significant that Jesus made his way to Bethany and on to Jerusalem. If you're watching online at solacechurch.com, thank you for being a part of our online community this morning. This series is so significant. Let me tell you how significant the series is. The last week of Jesus' life represents six, seven days But the Gospels, those four biographies that are in the Bible, the New Testament, the biographies of Jesus spend somewhere between 20 and 40%, depending on which Gospel you're talking about, between 20 and 40% of the written content, uh, content on that last week. Now John, in his Gospel, at the very end of his Gospel, says this, I suppose that if everything were written down, that Jesus did and said, the whole world could not contain the information. Of all that Jesus did in his 33 years of life, of his three years of ministry, of all of his teachings, of all of his interactions with people, of all of his miracles, think about this. The gospel writers found his last week so significant that they would devote the majority of their time to that week. I want to, for the next couple of minutes, walk you through that last week. It is an incredible week. 
It starts on Sunday, but let me get you to Sunday by way of Saturday. As I said before, Saturday, Jesus had made his way to Bethany. He is staying at the house of Lazarus, the one he raised from the dead earlier. Jesus also had friends, Mary and Martha. They were sisters of Lazarus. This is a place where Jesus would stay often. He made his way there on Saturday. But what's called Passion Week begins on Sunday. Actually, this very day, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus made his way into Jerusalem. This Sunday is called Palm Sunday, and many of you may not have known it was called Palm Sunday, and many of you certainly probably didn't know why it's called Palm Sunday. Today you'll know that. But before we walk through the week, I want you to know what, what, what I've been doing this last week. I've been very much in prayer. I know it was spring break, and I had a great time with my kids. We went to, we went to, uh, to Six Flags. Big mistake. <laughs> Won't do that again. But we went to, went to the Six Flags, and in like six hours, we rode three rides. It's incredible. Graham, my middle child, said it was the best day of his life. I need to get you out more. <laughs> Zach preached last week, did an incredible job talking about identity. I'm so thankful that he filled in for us. But I spent this last week actually the last couple of weeks, thinking about today's talk, today's message. I've been praying, because here's what I recognize, is there's some people in the room today, and and, and there's some things not going well for you. There very likely may be some people in the room today, and you have this significant problem, and it exists within us all, it's called a sin problem, and maybe, maybe you came in the room today and maybe you've never really dealt with that. Here's the truth. There may be a father in the room today and your son or your daughter or your family has been praying for you for years and years and years. And they go to bed at night and maybe they even cry themselves to sleep praying and calling out your name before the father. That, that somehow God's mercy and his grace would be made evident in your life through salvation. There's a teenager in the room today. There's a young adult in the room today. There's a 20-something in the room today. And your parents and your friends and your family have been calling your name out before the Father because it's likely you've been running. And it's very possible you may be here today and you've never come to terms with the significance of what we're going to talk about today. So I've been praying for you. And I don't know what your name is. And I don't know your situation. But hear me. You are not here by accident. Jesus was familiar with Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has not always looked the same. If you go back in the Old Testament, you you can read the story of how Jerusalem came under uh, Israel's control. David, when he reigned as the second king of Israel, conquered uh, what was a Jebusite stronghold and and he made his way into the city of Jerusalem. And he conquered the city of Jerusalem and he made it his home. It actually became really the capital, the center of of the major activities of the life of of the Israelites. This is a picture of what Jerusalem would have looked like after David conquered it and Solomon, the third king of Israel, reigned. This would have been the what's called the old city of of Israel, the city of David. David's palace would have been somewhere in this area. 
When Solomon came along, he expanded the city of, uh, of Jerusalem and he would have built his palace further on up. And, and God, through Solomon, stated to the nation of Israel that, that he wanted a dwelling place, a permanent place to exist. And so therefore Solomon built the first temple where God's dwelling was with man. In 586 BC, this city was destroyed through the Babylonian exile and the Babylonian conquests. Much of the city was left in ruins. But after a period of time, Jerusalem was rebuilt. Israel re-inhabited the land of, of, of Jerusalem and of Israel. And, and during the time of Jesus in the first century, Jerusalem was again a, a, a city a, a populated with, with Jews and by this time Gentiles or non-Jews as well. It was under Roman control. But at this point, when Jesus walks the earth, the temple had been rebuilt. It's called the second temple and it was built by Herod. This is a picture of what Jesus would have seen or would have had a chance to see as he walked the earth some 2,000 years ago. You can see the second temple here. The, the courts uh, of, of the Gentiles and the courts of the Jews and the, the, the holy place and holy of holies would have existed in the taller structure here. These were the city walls that Jesus would have seen. Now there's a gate down here called the Eastern Gate, the Golden Gate. It's a significant gate. I don't have time to tell you all about the gate today, but it's a significant gate in terms of, of, of prophecy. This would have been what Jesus would have been able to see. Just for those of you who care and want to know this, we went to Israel. You guys, I think, know that. Brian, our media producer, stood on the Mount of Olives, and he took this picture. It's a panoramic shot of what Jerusalem looks like today. It's changed quite a bit. If you can't see it from in the back, uh, you can let us know. We'll email you the picture, and you can have it for your own Facebook profile page. Sunday began the Passion Week, and Sunday was all about the entry. Jesus, after staying the night in Bethany, made his way to Bethpage, which was just outside of Jerusalem, west of Jerusalem. And as he was making his way to a place called the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is so significant in Jewish history and in the life of Jesus. Jesus spent much time on this mountain. And I recognize that you can't see great, this picture doesn't do it justice, but this is a very, very tall mountain. The Kindred Valley is, is, is the space in between the Mount of Olives and what I'll show you in a minute, which is the temple. And Jesus would have made his way to this very mountain. Before he got there, he sent his disciples ahead to prepare a donkey or a colt to ride on. This was the day Jesus was going to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so Jesus makes his way to the Mount of Olives. He, 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 he rides the, or he, he saddles the, whore, or the donkey. He begins to ride down the Mount of Olives into the Kindred Valley and he makes his way to the temple. I want to show you this picture of the temple because this is what Jesus would have been coming up into. Now this is a scale model, but Jesus would have been coming up into this Eastern Gate. Now this is incredibly important. The Israelites would have lined the area. Jesus would have been making his way down the kindred, uh, into the Kindred Valley and then up again into Jerusalem, into the temple. And, and, and as the crowds lined the way, Jesus made his way on the donkey down the Mount of Olives, through the Kindred Valley, up into, the, up into Jerusalem. And the crowds cried out as they laid palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, palm branches down on the ground, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's prophetic. He is coming as the Messiah. And, and the crowds, by the way, do not recognize the significance of what they're doing. 
This is fulfilled prophecy for the prophets foretold that the Messiah would come on the back of a donkey. The crowds didn't really understand. They were looking for a political leader, but Jesus was going to be the Messiah, the spiritual savior. Jesus is so overwhelmed by what's going on that as he makes his way down the Mount of Olives, he looks at the people, he looks at Jerusalem, and he begins to weep because they are missing the significance of what's going on. They think they know, but they don't. Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem that day. It's very likely that on the other side of the city, coming in from the the west to the east, that Pilate, the governor of the region, would have been making his way into Jerusalem as well. On this day, on this Sunday, it is very likely that Pilate would have made his way. And the reason why is because Pilate, on holy days or holidays, wanted to make sure that those rebellious, riotous Jews did not get out of hand. And so Pilate, more than likely on Sunday, would have made his way in from the west as Jesus was making his way in from the east. Now think about the significance, church. (laughs) Pilate comes riding on a horse, a stallion, maybe white. He has an entourage of people, an army of soldiers protecting him. He comes with authority, with majesty, with power, with grandeur, with splendor. He makes his way into the city. Jesus, on the other side, comes on a donkey. The governor, who believes he is in power, compared to the creator, coming to the same city. Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, into the temple. He looks around, but doesn't say much and doesn't do anything significant. He makes his way out of the the temple, um, Later in the day, he encounters a couple of different non-Jewish people. They ask a couple of questions. He gives them an answer. But he makes his way on back to Bethany at the end of Sunday. On Monday, Jesus provides the cleansing. On Monday, Jesus makes his way back from, from Bethany to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and into the temple area as well. This is significant. Because on Monday, Jesus goes back to the very place that he made entry. But on this day, he is not positioning himself against Roman authority. Today, he's positioning himself against Jewish religious corruption. He goes into the temple. He sees what's taking place. He walks into what is a very corrupt system of money exchanging and of temple sacrifices. And he throws over the tables. There are tens of thousands of people in this very area. It is the week of Passover. They come to celebrate. They've come to to worship. They come to experience the grandeur of the temple. Jesus throwing tables over. Mark records for us, and you can follow the story of Mark chapter 11. Mark records for us that Jesus did not allow on this Monday any merchandise to come in or out of the temple. He stopped the sacrificial system cold in its tracks One man among tens of thousands messed up the whole system. The religious leaders are watching Jesus do this. And Mark records for us that they began to plot his death. Jesus on Monday cleanses the temple. He sets himself up now against the religious leaders, the Jewish sacrificial system. Jesus, after this, makes his way back to Bethany. He spends the night again on Monday in Bethany, and then he makes his way again on Tuesday back to the temple. What? (laughs) You just threw over the tables. Remember that? 
probably not a great idea to be going back to that same place where you disrupted everything the day before. Not Jesus, he goes back. (laughs) And on Tuesday, as Jesus makes his way back in, he begins to teach. Solace Church, I believe that Tuesday is the most significant teaching day in the life of Jesus next to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 records, I think, the greatest teaching ever given to man. Matthew 21, 22, 23, and 24, and Mark 11, 12, and 13 are incredible passages. And they all center on Tuesday's activities. Jesus makes his way back in the temple. The religious leaders who saw Jesus overturn the tables look at him and said, Hey, what authority do you have to do all that you're doing in this area? And Jesus looks at them and said, I'll answer that question if you can answer a question for me. John's baptism. Was it from God or from man? Brilliant question. The religious leaders think about the question. They they get together and they, they consider the significance of their answer. If they say it was from God, then they show themselves as, as missing a moment from God because they rejected John the Baptist. But if they say it was from man, they're scared of the crowds because the, the crowds loved John the Baptist. And so the religious leaders of the day bring the brilliant men that they were. They looked at Jesus and they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, then I won't tell you either. That whole day, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They ask Jesus about taxes. And they ask Jesus about the resurrection. They ask Jesus, who is the son of Christ? And they ask him all these different questions. And one by one, Jesus answers with profound wisdom, with profound authority. And the crowds are amazed at his teaching. As a matter of fact, on this very Tuesday, it was likely that Jesus was in the temple. But it was also on the the southern steps, which was a very popular place in Israel to actually teach. And by the way, we had the chance to walk these steps when we were in Israel. It was incredible. After Jesus on Monday overthrows the tables, on Tuesday he answers all their trick questions and then after that, as if that wasn't enough, he looks at these very religious leaders and he offers to them seven woes. (laughs) Woe to you, religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. (laughs) Lest you weren't offended, offended enough, let me just say you're hypocrites. After this day of teaching, and by the way, one of the greatest teaching points ever in Scripture happened on this Tuesday. When a man said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, that's pretty easy. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. After this, Jesus removes himself with his disciples. They go back to the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse. The disciples are like, I can't believe what I'm experiencing right now. This guy's out of his mind. This is amazing. This is incredible. And they go over to the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives where they had come from earlier that day. And they look at Jesus and they're like, man, this is incredible. Can you tell us about this whole kingdom and when it's all going to come to pass? And then Matthew 24 unfolds where Jesus lays out the case of, of what will take place in the moments when Christ returns. It is an incredible day. And then they go to Bethany again. Could you imagine him walking with Jesus? <laughs> man. Wednesday, <clears throat> Jesus stays home. Good decision. On Wednesday really is the day of preparation. Wednesday, Jesus stays in Bethany. He stays there and he eats at a man's house. And while he's at this man's house, a lady comes and washes his feet. She pours very expensive perfume onto his feet and washes her feet. The disciples are outraged. Being the godly 
Christ followers that they were, they were furious that someone would waste such expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. Jesus looks at them and says, you have no idea what she's doing. She's preparing me for my burial. It was at this moment that Judas, the betrayer, leaves and goes to meet with the religious leaders that are plotting to kill Jesus, and he makes a deal with them. For 30 pieces of silver, I will give you Jesus. Wednesday passes and Thursday comes. Jesus is in Bethany. He tells his disciples, make your way back into Jerusalem to a room that that a man will show you that's being prepared. Prepare the room, for I will eat with you this day. Now hear me. Thursday is Passover. Thursday is the day where all throughout the nation of Israel, families would gather together to remember the moment when the blood allowed the nation of Israel to escape the wrath of God. Jesus, Thursday evening, makes his way to the upper room. By the way, here's a picture of the upper room. We were there as well. It's an incredible sight to behold. This is the place where Jesus and his disciples would have met. And they met there, and Jesus ate a Passover meal with them. And after Passover, he got up, and he took some bread, an unleavened bread, and he looked at his disciples, and he said, Fellas, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And he took the wine, and he looked at his disciples, and he said, This is my blood of the new covenant. Oh, don't miss this, church. Don't miss this. What Jesus just said to them at the Passover event was so significant. Hear me. As they're thinking about what took place in Egypt, Jesus brings the juice, the wine, and he looks at them and he says, this is the blood that institutes a new covenant. This institutes not what you received in freedom out of Egypt, but a new kind of freedom, which is forgiveness, which is salvation, which is redemption, which is the forgiveness of your sins. It's a new covenant. Drink it. And as often as you do it, remember what I've done for you. Do you see the power? He's in the upper room and he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper and he eats with them. About midnight on Thursday, he leaves the upper room and he heads to the Garden of Gethsemane. We had a chance to walk through the, or around the Garden of Gethsemane. You can't walk through it. It's holy ground. This is a picture of where Jesus would have taken his disciples at midnight, Thursday into Friday. For two hours, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for he knew that his life was about to be given. For two hours, he prays with intensity in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he prays so, with such intensity, that sweat become drops of blood. After a, a, a period of time, he goes and looks at his disciples, who's he, who he's asked to pray with them, and they have fallen asleep. <laughs> you ever fallen asleep while you prayed? Me. Jesus goes back and prays again, Father, if this is possible, let this pass from me. But if not, your will, not mine. Judas has made his way to the chief priests and the Pharisees. He's left the upper room. He has arranged for them to meet Jesus in the garden. And Jesus, at about 2 a.m., is met face-to-face with his betrayer, Judas, and the entourage of soldiers and religious leaders who are there to arrest him. At 2 a.m., he is taken to a place called Uh, to to the house of Annas, which is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. This is Friday, and this is when the trial begins. Annas takes Jesus to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas' house was positioned 
so that underneath his house, there were, there were these prison cells, this dungeon. We were able to walk through that as well. This is a picture of one of the chambers, one of the rooms where Jesus could have stayed when he was taken to Caiaphas' house. You can't see it very well in the image, but there's a hole right here. And also over here, there's other, there's other uh, chambers with holes just like this. These holes up here were for ropes to be, be uh, uh, laced through so that prisoners could be uh, strung up like this while they were in prison. Jesus could have been down there. At Caiaphas' house, he is questioned. Witnesses are brought before, uh, before Jesus to accuse him, to condemn him. They can't get their story together, so they could not condemn in that, in those moments. Caiaphas, 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 early in that morning, asked Jesus, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, yes. At that moment, Caiaphas, Caiaphas rips his outer garments and cries out, he is one who commits blasphemy, worthy of death by execution. The problem is, he doesn't have the authority to execute. Only Rome does. Caiaphas takes Jesus and, and sends him to, to Pilate's house or to Pilate's place of, of, of residence in Jerusalem. Pilate's place of residence is a place called the Fort of Antonia, which is this location right here. This is the area Pilate would have stayed. Pretty impressive. <laughs> a well-fortified place that Pilate would have been staying. This is where Jesus was taken. This is where he would have been beaten and flogged. Pilate brings, Jesus is brought before Pilate and he asks Jesus some questions and Jesus is hesitant to respond. After a period of time, there is no reason Pilate finds for execution. He finds out that Jesus is under Herod's jurisdiction. He sends Jesus from Pilate to Herod. Herod has a conversation with Jesus. Again, no grounds for, for, for crucifixion. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate is faced with a dilemma. At this point, it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday. Jesus is there before Pilate, and Pilate has an idea. On this holiday, holiday, holy day, I will release a prisoner, which was custom, customary. He stands before the crowds that had gathered, and he says to the crowds, would you rather me release Barabbas or Jesus? And the crowds who once cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are now crying out, we want Barabbas. What shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. So Pilate has Jesus flogged and beaten. There's a crown placed on his head at Caiaphas' house. He's still wearing it. He's wrapped in a purple cloth. He's taken out of the, out of the fort of Antonia. And he's, he's made to carry his cross down what's called the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. He makes his way outside the city walls to a place called Golgotha. Many people believe in the church that Jesus was crucified on a hill. We see a glamorous picture of Jesus up on this hill with, you know, backlit, you know, Jesus is... It's just not true. What was more likely true that Jesus carried his cross and was hung alongside of many, many other criminals. What was different though, and I'm, I'm finishing with this, what was different about Jesus and his crucifixion makes all the difference. At 9 a.m., Jesus is hung on the cross. At 3, uh, at 3 p.m., Jesus finally breathes his last breath. Do you remember what he says before he dies? It is finished. Profound words. It was very customary on the Passover, which would still be Friday, Thursday evening to Friday evening. It was customary at 3 p.m. on Friday for the chief priest to blow the shofar, the ram's horn. <laughs> and at 3 p.m. on Friday on the Passover, when the chief police, priest would blow the shofar, they would take the lamb that was selected the day before and they would sacrifice the lamb for the sins of the nation of Israel. But on this Friday at 3 p.m., 
There was the death of Jesus. And in that moment, an earthquake shook the ground. And in that moment, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies ripped from top to bottom. That was quite a bit different than any other Passover they've experienced before. Because on this day, what changed is the Passover lamb, the son of God, came and gave his life on a cross. On the Passover moment at 3 p.m., when all the rest of Israel was believing it was just another event, Jesus came and gave his life on a cross cross. Now hear me. John, John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus in John chapter one, verse 29, looks at him before all this takes place early in his ministry. He looks at that man, Jesus, and he says to the crowd, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul in first Corinthians chapter five, verse seven says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. All that to say this, what happened on this day on good Friday, was that God demonstrated something remarkable. That what was a picture and a type in the Old Testament with Egypt and Israel now became the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus. That's why in Romans chapter 5, and I'm done, listen, in Romans chapter 5, Jesus, or Paul says this about Jesus, you see at just the right time. That's right, at 3 o'clock on Friday, the exact right time to prove who he was. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse number 7 says, Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly die. But in verse 8, he said, But God demonstrates his love in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what took place some 2,000 years ago made the provision for salvation for all who would believe, both for the Jew that was there on that day and for the Gentile, the non-Jew that might be at Solace Church this morning. So here's what I want you to do. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.